Amen. As we open our Bibles, the ninth chapter of the book of Romans, and are ready to hear the word this morning, I want to rehash a phrase from last Lord's Day from the second chapter of Colossians, that you are complete in Him. I'd like for you to say that. I am complete in Him. Say that with me. I am complete in Him. And as we look to Christ in our election, I trust that even over the course of this time together this morning, that you will know that truth all the greater in the fullness of what God intends you to know in that who you are in Christ. We are chosen in Christ. You've been united together in Christ. Your hope is in Christ, and He is among us who is our hope. So let's Read together the first 16 verses of Romans chapter 9. Okay, 17 verses. Let's do that one. Hear the word of God. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At that time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So that it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Our gracious and merciful Heavenly Father, we come to this passage of Scripture with fear and trembling, with humility, and with the inability in ourselves to apprehend it. Send your Spirit upon us so that not only our minds may contain it, but our spirits would fall down and and praise the greatness of your grace. 
that we might see your glory as you have declared this even to Moses when you passed by him. And you declared your glory orally that he could hear it. May we hear it this day. We pray that the Spirit would fall fresh upon us this day. We pray that through the power of the preaching that you would work with your Spirit in all of our hearts to raise us up to the glory of Christ. That we might see Him. And as we see and behold His glory, we might be changed from glory to glory into His likeness. Lord, we pray You would do the work in our hearts that none of us can do. We pray that You would apply afresh now the Gospel to our lives. And we pray You'd be glorified in this time. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. In the earlier years of my ministry, I was teaching through the biblical doctrines and came to the doctrine of what we now call and come to this morning, the doctrine of unconditional election. In my Sunday school class that I was teaching, I was challenged by a young man who had come from a very Arminian background. And as I opened the Bible to this very chapter and began the, the work and worked my way through it and through the exegesis of the content, he seemed rather dismissive of the whole exercise. Because he couldn't argue with clarity in which the Scriptures so clearly here teach, for they are not vague on this point. He simply dismissed the subject and said that we shouldn't delve into those matters that we really don't know about and we don't really know here what the Bible means. Now, that these things and the things that this chapter emphasize should not be dismissed. Those particular comments came from a man-centered perspective which not only diminished the Scriptures, but whose pride squelches the very things that should have been his praise. And I'm afraid that too many share his sentiments today, too many stumble over this high doctrine of unconditional election. This that we call the election of God or predestination is the high watermark of the doctrine of grace. And the very reason it incites so much protest that comes from the pride of man. Where pride rises up, it will always do so against grace. And that is why God gives the grace to the humble. In many spheres of the church, the gospel has become man-centered and needs-based. And it is about man and for man, concerned all with man. And this perspective of the gospel that so hones in on man is, is like a photographer, which many of you might understand the illustration, who then takes his zoom lens and zooms in so much on man that all the things with this high aperture setting will then fade into an unfocused perspective on the peripheral. And in this man-centered gospel, God gets pushed to the background, becomes out of focus in the far field of view, so that man becomes the clear focus of the subject. The doctrine of election is vitally important for us to have an understanding of the correct view of God. It should not be dismissed, diminished, pushed aside, or having any of our baggage that we might come to it in a 
perspective that is displeasing to God govern our particular thoughts. It is a fearsome doctrine. In fact, that's what's so wrong with so many of the contrary views of the gospel today. Churches are more concerned about their church growth or about numbers or meeting man's needs or some man-centered focus that they have just lost sight of God's rights and His glory. God's character and His glory is the highest quality and the greatest good of our salvation is often marginalized and oftentimes not even considered very important. Those things become out of focus in the background and diminished. And it's no wonder we have the problems in the church that we do. We can't even get the gospel right or the focus right. J.I. Packer in his introductory essay, his foreword that he wrote, which has been published in its own right to the death of the death and the death of Christ by John Owens. What a title is that? Says this, quote, Without realizing it, we have, during the past century, bartered the biblical gospel for a substitute product which, though it looks similar enough in all points of detail, is, as a whole, a decidedly different thing. Hence, our troubles. For the substitute product does not answer the ends for which the authentic gospel has in past days proved itself so mighty. The new gospel conspicuously fails to produce deep reverence, deep repentance, deep humility, a spirit of worship, a concern for the church. Why? We would suggest that the reason lies in its own character and content. It fails to make men God-centered in their thoughts and God-fearing in their hearts because this is not primarily what it is trying to do. One way of stating the difference between it and the old gospel is to say that it is exclusively concerned to be helpful to man, to bring peace, comfort, happiness, satisfaction, and too little concern to glorify God. The old gospel was helpful too, and more so, indeed, than is the new, but so to speak, incidentally, for it first concern was always to give glory to God. It was and is essentially a proclamation of divine sovereignty and mercy and judgment, a summons to bow down and worship the mighty Lord on whom man depends for all good, both in nature and in grace. But in the new gospel, the center of reference is man. End of quote. As we come to this topic this morning of Christ and your election, we must get the center right. And when we do, we will have the right perspective for all of life. And it is only when we get the center right will we have that clarity. Because the chief end of man is to glorify God. And when we do, we can enjoy Him forever.
As we consider this passage before us, the first thing that the Apostle Paul does through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who wants us to know God's mind and His will and His perspective, is he turns our attention to the great privileges of Israel. He mentions nine privileges that Israel had in verses 4 and 5. These were Israelites. He's referring to a particular people that God had chosen through the seed of Abraham that were known as Hebrews that went down into Egypt. He delivered them out and he made them a nation of people with great honor and with wonderful privilege and made them into a great nation. The second privilege they had that Paul refers to here is the adoption. And here he refers to the Israel as a sonship to God as a nation. And the third privilege that they had was they had the glory which referenced the external visible appearance of God on this earth in their very midst in the cloudy pillar and the fire by night and the Shekinah glory that came down upon the temple and resided among them over the ark. Fourth, They had the covenants, the covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They had the covenant of David and the promise of a king that would reign over all the nations that would sit upon the throne. This covenant, these relationships, and this relationship with God had many associated blessings. Fifth, they had the giving of the law, which would point to God, would reveal God, show the very nature and the character of God. It would guide nations to know how to govern in righteousness, and it would expose sin to lead people to the promise of salvation in Christ, and it would show Christians how to live righteously. What a blessing. But that was not all. They had more. They had the service of God. And I think this points to the very ministry of the temple and the the presence of God where heaven has come down and earth meets in this heaven and earth space. And they had the privilege of being this royal priesthood for all of the world to gather in up all of the praises and bring it to its creator. They had the promises of God. The sixth or the seventh privilege. 456 Messianic promises in the Old Testament, and they had these. They were privileged. Eight, they had the fathers, this rich heritage and this covenant succession on whose shoulders they stood, who to declare the good things of God, and then ninth, from whom Christ came in the flesh. Israel was the cradle of the Messiah. And Paul looks over all these privileges that God had given to this people, and he laments with it all because the majority of them had not received salvation. And then in verse 6, Paul draws a distinction in this doctrine of election when he says, For they are not all Israel that are of Israel. There is a distinction between a corporate election and an individual election. Israel, as a corporate people of God, has been called in the Old Testament, among other things, God's elect that we read in Isaiah 45. In calling God's people collectively God's elect, he can be referring to the entire nation of Israel. 
And the same is true for the church today. The church is God's elect. It is His chosen bride for the Son. It is the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city above, the mother of us all, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the pillar in the ground of the truth. The church is God's elect in that corporate sense of the term. And in fact, we could say, in the spirit of this verse, they are not all the church who are of the church. And what that means as we read back into verse 6, the thought, those individuals who make up elect Israel are not all themselves elect. In other words, there is a sense in which you can be referred to as elect and have all those privileges and being numbered in with God's elect, yet fail to receive them individually and spiritually and eternally. There are many in the church today, part of the elect, who receive benefits from being a part of God's blessed people, as privileged people, but who are themselves not elect. You see that distinction? Paul's going to do this throughout this chapter in showing distinctions. These are the tares among wheat, as Matthew might say. And that is why Peter would exhort those in the church to be diligent to make their calling and election sure. So I can approach all of you as the elect. And then I can say with Peter what he just exhorted. But he makes another distinction beginning at verses 7 through 9. And he is then going to point and narrowing down the focus a little bit more. It's almost like this big zoom lens that we're beginning to focus beginning to to share and show in and to focus and frame the picture. And now he's going to draw a distinction between Abraham's children and Abraham's seed. He says in verse 7, Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, because, uh, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. This is those who are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as the seed. For this is the promise. And see, see, there's this distinction that he's being made between Abraham's children and Abraham's seed. And that distinction here is made clear between two men, Ishmael and Isaac. Two boys of Abraham, born of the same man, born of the one that the covenant had been given, but born of two mothers. And we see this this analogy in Galatians that fleshes this out more so. But Ishmael represented the physical descendants of Abraham, but they were the children of the flesh. Ishmael was a product of, of human ingenuity and human works. But Isaac represents the children of promise. Isaac is a result of God's direct intervention with barren Sarah. And this line of children that came from him were characterized by faith in the promises of God. 
But now Paul's going to make another distinction. He's now going to to take and, and distinguish now between two other boys, and between those two other boys, they were both going to be born of Abraham or of his lineage, right down through that covenant. And they were also going to be born of the same woman, and a godly covenant woman she was. But this distinction now is between two twins between Jacob and Esau. Both of these were born of the same covenant woman, Rebekah. Both were given the sign of the covenant of circumcision. They were twins in order to make the point that God desires to make here very clear. Because even among twins, one would be older, and the older would have the natural order of the birthright and the inheritance given unto him. But to illustrate this, and quite against that natural order, the Scripture reveals that God specially chose Jacob to receive that inheritance and not Esau. He says in verse 10, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, but the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Both of these boys were a direct result of God's intervention. Rebecca, you may recall, like Sarah, was barren. Rebecca, like Sarah, was the covenant mother of children. So if you're going to talk about a physical lineage, you weren't going to get any better or any closer than this. And as the twins wrestle inside of Rebecca's womb and she inquires, what's going on? God stated right then what he was determined to do. God had chosen the younger one over the older child. And God was not making here a prediction, but rather he was stating his own selection. The term hate here used of Esau is not used in the absolute sense, but it has reference to the rejection of Esau. We see the same kind of terminology in Matthew, unless you hate your father and mother, um, you cannot be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. And it, it is a, 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 in reference to um, a relationship or in that sense, not in the absolute sense. In fact, we, we, we know from the Scripture that it was told to Rebekah that the younger would serve the older. But that phrase, I have hated Esau, doesn't come till Malachi. So Rebekah did not hear that. But we have that knowledge through the Scripture. What's going on in this chapter is a very large view of salvation that has been narrowing in and getting closer and getting closer back to the source of it all. And as we began seeing from a distance something far away and we began getting it further in focus and we zoom in a little bit more and we get it in focus and zoom in a little bit more and we get it in focus, that's the idea here. And we're seeing these distinctions between those who are in Israel and those who are not. When we narrow it down further, we see a distinction of those who are in the flesh and those who are of faith. 
and the children of, who are works-based and those who are faith-based with God's direct intervention. And faith and God's promises were the distinguishing characteristic of Isaac and distinguished over Ishmael. But a further distinction is now made even among those products of God's direct intervention between Esau and Jacob, both born of a barren covenant woman. And here we see a distinction that God is making in unconditional election. And what we see that comes so clearly in the focus, right in the middle of the frame, is not man, but God who has decided that. It is not Him who wills, but of God who will have mercy, but of God who will have compassion on whom He will have compassion. And it is God alone who is the agent of salvation. It is God alone who is the giver of salvation. And it is God alone who is the withholder of salvation. And this is where the rub often comes. And Paul anticipates his objections at this point, and he will deal with them. But first, let's clarify this doctrine of unconditional election, that it is simply stated as the teaching of Scripture that God chooses a certain number of sinners to be saved. And He has personally known them and chosen them before they were yet even born. The number of His elect has been determined before the world was even created, and you can neither add to that number nor subtract from that number, but those He has chosen to save, He has intimately known from before the foundation of the world. He has known you. The election of God's is according to his own sovereign choice and his purpose, and it is unconditional. In other words, there is nothing in the person that God chooses that is the condition for which or makes God or influences God to choose that person. God's choice is solely made by His free sovereign grace. See, today we got it a little bit cloudy. We, we would look at uh, important figures, and they come to Christ, and immediately we throw them into pulpits, and we look how much good they can do. Or we look to a certain person, and we say, man, how much good could be done if God would say that no, 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 God takes the base things of this world to confine those things which are wise so that His name would be glorified. God doesn't need any of us. He's chosen to use us. God doesn't owe us a thing of any good that we would deem. See, what it's doing is reshaping us. It's getting our focus back. all the possible conditions we can come up with, I believe, are shown in this passage. Things that we could argue. But God did not choose anyone simply because they were an Israelite or numbered in with the corporate people for whom God favored. 
God did not choose anyone because He looked down the quarters of time and He could see who would choose Him. So therefore God chose Him based upon how this man or woman would choose Him. God made His choice before the twins were even yet born. He made His choice not because one had done certain works and the other not. God did not choose one because one was inherently good and the other evil. There was no condition inherent in either one of Jacob or Esau except for God's sovereign purpose of grace. He chose Jacob. Rejected Esau. And he didn't have to choose either one. God did not choose them based upon any good that they would do for Christ. He did not choose them because of some natural privilege according to the order of their birthright. He did not choose any person because of any intrinsic value or worthiness in the individual, including their faith. He didn't choose you simply because He knew that you would act in faith upon His Son. He could not be more clear in this passage that God's choice to save one over another is clearly and only His prerogative. It is His choice. It is not conditioned by anything in the individual Himself. And this is why this doctrine is so fearsome. It's humbling. It's why this doctrine has been rejected by so many places salvation clearly and solely in the hands of God who saves, not on the will of him who runs, nor even on the free will of him who chooses, but solely and only in God alone. And He can make choices about his creation and his clay and how he wants to make the vessel any way that he chooses because he is God. He's the creator. And immediately Paul anticipates the pushback. Well, that's not fair. He knew that was coming. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? As the King James would say, God forbid. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him who wills or for him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. It's interesting to know that when God was revealing this to Moses, as Moses says, Lord, let me see your glory. And he says, oh, you can't see it, but I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and pass by you and I'll declare. This is what he was declaring. And it was right on the heels of all of that bad stuff Israel had done. And God was about to lead them into the promised land, quite despite. That's why Moses intercedes and we see the picture of Christ and interceding for us. And in Christ we are complete and in Christ we are accepted. In Christ we are loved. In Christ we have glory. Is it fairness you all? That's what he wants to wrestle with here. Is it really what you want? Now what we mean by fairness is that's just not quite right. <laughs> that's not right. Don't want it. Is it, is it really righteousness that you're looking for? Is that really what you want? You want to hold God to that particular 
thing. You really want justice because that's what righteousness is. It's the ex- justice is the execution of righteousness. You really want what is fairly due to you. And I think if you understand where that point is going, we would all shake our heads and say, no, 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 I, I want mercy. I don't want justice. See, God can do with his creation as he sees fit. And, and who are we to argue against him? In fact, he can even raise up Pharaoh and harden his heart. And God could use this man to show his great power to the world, but his great mercy to his people. And if you read through the rest of that passage, you're going to see that's exactly why he raises up this vessel of dishonor so that he can show his great mercy to his people. And God can do that because he's the potter. And we're the clay, and the clay has no right or prerogative to tell the potter how to make the vessels. We can't counsel God. So we must yield to the Creator. This is a dreadful doctrine. It's a fearful doctrine. But it also comes with the greatest hope and the greatest encouragement that will give you more courage in the face of fear or danger. It'll give you faith in every situation if you but remember it. You are here today among God's elect. And in that sense alone, you've got great privileges that you enjoy, but that alone is not where your security and salvation lies. Perhaps you are here believing in the promises of God and Jesus Christ, but that faith in itself did not get you here. And it is not what will complete your journey. It is not your faith itself that you can trust. God alone and His favored, sovereign choice of you is ultimately what gives you your salvation and security. If you're trusting in Christ today, then you can be assured of your election. If God's election, it is God's election that has brought you to faith. It is not the other way around. God has favored you. He has chosen you in Christ before the foundation of the world. And that phrase in Ephesians, that is in Him you were predestined, is an important phrase to understand this relationship and this decree of God from before the foundation of the world. Before God decreed that the world would fall, He decreed a Savior and He decreed your salvation. He had it all planned out, worked out from the very beginning, and it just has happened exactly like He has planned it, has decreed it. See, God already knew you. He had already chosen you in His Son. And you have been favored and blessed from even before you knew how to breathe, how to talk, or knew who He was. You were united in Christ from the very beginning. God has chosen you to receive all the benefits that Christ has procured for you. And God could make you a vessel of dishonor, just like Pharaoh, if he so desired. But that was not his plan for you. 
You are not a vessel of wrath, and he, it would have been his prerogative. He would have been righteous to do so, but that is not what he had planned for you. You are here today trusting in Jesus because God, God had purposed it so. God had determined it. And all that you see in your life that is being lived out, and even the very faith that you cling to that cross so tightly, you can look back and see, ah, oh, that was God. That was a gift. How He's brought you through all of the life up to this point. You can say, oh, that was God. We start off thinking we make our choices. Do we go left or right? We look behind. Oh, that was God. When Peter says that you are elect according to the foreknowledge of God, he does not mean that God was looking down the corridors of time and just simply foreknew how you would choose. Because according to your total depravity, you would not choose him. You are totally depraved and all your faculties have been bent and, 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 and warped and skewed. And that is not how he, in fact, it's meaning so much more. What Peter is talking about, you were elect according to the foreknowledge of God. The very knowledge that Peter's referring to is the kind of experiential knowledge that a man has with a woman as a husband and a wife. It is the kind of knowledge that is very clearly given to us in Genesis 4 when it says that Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived. That's the kind of knowledge that God says he has had with you before the foundation of the world and according to that he has chosen you. It is this relational knowledge that God knew you before the foundation of the world. This intimate knowledge. He knew you. And even as the psalmist says, even before my parts were formed in my mother's womb, you knew me. And you loved me. See, this doctrine is going to refute all the man-centeredness in the gospel. And, and if, 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 if the Spirit has opened up your ears and your hearts to receive this, you're going to say, well, why do we need the, all, that new stuff? This is absolutely amazing. This is encouraging. And this humbles me. This will drive out all of the low views of God. It's going to drive out those low views of the church. It's going to drive out the low views of God's people. If we but knew, if we but appreciated the astounding blessedness of God's salvation with all of the implications, we, were, we would forever rejoice no matter what came our way. We would be fearless in the face of all of our enemies. God has foreknown you and loved you and chosen you in Christ long before you were even born? Do you not think that every detail of your life has already been figured out long before you even planted, long before you even came along? That very fact that you have faith is because God brought you to faith. The very fact that God brought you into context with the very gospel so that you could believe is the very decree of God. Is there anything here on earth for you to fear? Is there anything for you to really worry about? God is the source of it all. He has planned your way from the beginning. You've got to trust Him. 
God has already planned every one of your trials. And in them, they were designed specifically and personally for you, for His glory, and for your ultimate good. He's already got it all figured out. He knew you from the beginning. He designed you. He has already orchestrated all those events. And in them, you have to trust Him. In them, you can praise Him. God knows, if you're single, who you're going to marry. He's known that too, before the foundation of the world. Or if you'll marry at all, and you've got to trust Him, so there's no reason to be anxious. He's got it all figured out. God has all your victories scheduled. And in them, don't forget, when you're on the mountaintop, in this great celebration, don't forget who brought you there. Who elevated you there? Who has given you the reason to celebrate and rejoice? God has all your hospital appointments and surgeries already on the calendar. You've got to trust Him. He's got it all taken care of. There is no catching Him by surprise. He doesn't look over the corridors of heaven and say, oh, what has gone on here? It caught me by surprise. There's none of that with God. You might recall just a little while ago when Jesus then finishes feeding the 5,000 and He goes up on the mountain and He sends His disciples away and across the boat. He had already planned the storm. Then he approaches them. And Peter wants to walk on water too. He says, oh, come on. Now what other man has ever walked on water? And yet when he sees the Lord Jesus, he's walking on the water. No man can walk on the water. Peter's walking on the water. Until he looks at the storm and the winds and the waves and then he begins to sink. But the Lord was right there to catch him. All that was planned. That was scheduled. That was on God's books. But just as it happened And God already has your death planned out. You don't need to worry about that either. Who can worry and add one cubit to his stature or one day to his life? Can't do it. He knows the timing. It's on the calendar. He knows the way. And you don't need to worry about it. And would it help? he just told you when and how? I don't think so. See, this isn't a call to fatalism, but it's a call to faith in the sovereign God who, who loves you and who has loved you and who will love you and has chosen you from among all the peoples of the earth to praise Him and to love Him and to worship Him and to follow Him and to serve Him with His God-centeredness of all of your life so that you know that it's not about you. Though as you put Him in the focus, He gives you the greatest satisfaction of all of life, and that is to glorify Him. And when we turn our attention to God of our salvation, He comes into focus at the center of the frame, and there's no problem that we can't face with the assurance of ultimate victory. We don't need a man-centered gospel. It's impotent to provide the hope. It fails to provide the very things it hopes for. 
And that is why we have so many youth leaving the church today. That is why churches are failing. It is because of a man-centered gospel and that the good old gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ and the, and the potency of the omnipotent God who raised up Jesus from the dead is the same power that is given to you is potent for everything in your life. It is the power of God. When you share your testimony with somebody else or even before the church, make sure that you do not tell them what you did. Make sure you tell them of what God did for you. Don't tell them about your history. Tell them about God's. See, we need to get God back into the frame and focus on Him with our lives and what we do. And all the problems of life will become really more distant and those problems will become out of focus because they will be reinterpreted in the light of His glory. And that's what we need. We need to see His glory. And when we see the brightness of His glory, we can't really focus on all those other things. The vision of heritage is never to take credit for anything God is doing here. It is give God glory in everything. If we are ever going to boast, there's only one thing the Apostle through the power of the Spirit would ever want us to boast about, and that boasting is the Lord Jesus Christ, Him crucified and Him raised from the dead. That's our boast. It's the only thing. If you've got anything to boast about, it's only because God has given it to you, and therefore you can't even boast about that. There is nothing you have to boast in except the God of your salvation. And let's boast in Him. Be God-centered and so God-focused that we are constantly focused on Him so that we give Him praise and we give Him glory in every situation that we decrease and He increases because heritage is about God. We want to be centered on God and our salvation to be centered on God and our worship to be centered on God and our service and ministry here to be centered on God. Not what I want to do, but what God wants me to do. Not who I am, but who I am in Christ to the glory of God. And where we fall short of that, where we're deficient in that, may God help us. May God be merciful to us to bring us back to this glorious vision of God's almighty holiness and splendor. I want to end this with a quote which is true both for the individual as well as for the church corporately. Lorraine Butner in his work Reformed Doctrine of Predestination said this about this doctrine as it pertains to life. He's considering this as, a, as to individuals, but I think the application can be extended even to God's elect as the church. The Christian, he quotes, I quote, the Christian who has this doctrine in his heart knows that he is following a heaven-directed course, that his course has been foreordained for him personally, and that it is a good course. He does not yet understand all the details, but even amid adversities, he can look forward confident to the future, knowing that his eternal destiny is fixed and forever blessed 
and that nothing can possibly rob him of the priceless treasure. He realizes that after he has finished the course here, he shall look back over it and see that every single event, and it was designed of God for a particular purpose, and that he will with thankful and ha- he will be thankful in having been led through those particular experiences. Once convinced of these truths, he knows that the day is surely coming when all those who will grieve or persecute him, he shall say, he shall be able to say, as Joseph did with his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. This exalted concept, conception of God as high and lifted up, yet personally concerned with every, even the smallest events, leaves no place for what men commonly call chance or luck or fortune. And when a person sees himself as one of the Lord's chosen, and he knows that every one of his acts has an eternal significance, he realizes more clearly how serious life is, and he is fired with new determination to make his life count for great things. Amen and amen. Our gracious Father, how thankful we are that you have humbled us this day under this fearful and mighty truth of your election, not conditioned on anything in us, because you had mercy upon us and have had compassion We come this day offering you our thanksgiving. We come also offering you fresh and new the totality of our lives to be used in service and praise and worship and to glorify your name however you deem fit, however best we can do. As you have made each of these individuals with a particular frame and with a particular design in mind, as you have formed each of these vessels as vessels for honor, we pray, O God, you would comfort and encourage and strengthen us in the glory of your grace. There are some here that are facing great uncertainties. Some here that are fearful of the future. Some have anxieties that are troubling them or relationships in their lives that are less than satisfactory. Some may not even know financially how things are going to turn out tomorrow. But Lord, you do. And you love us. As we have heard of this doctrine new this day, fresh, we pray that you would call us through it to trust you more fully. That we would love you more completely. And that we would honor you in a higher and reverent way. Lord, we pray that you would take the truths and apply it specifically to our lives, that you would comfort us in those things of which we are troubled. It calls our attention now to be focused upon the heaven and upon the God of the heavens and upon the glory in the face of Jesus Christ and so change us to be in His likeness. As we will shortly participate in a meal that you have specifically set for us on this day. May we not think that it was just happenstance or another week that has gone by, but this is new today. And we pray that we would receive it with all the thanksgiving and gratitude that is your dessert, that is due to your name. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.